Welcome to Catholics Across the Isle, the podcast of the Florida Conference of Catholic Bishops, offering commentary on public policy and civic life. This is Michael Sheedy, Executive Director of the Conference. Welcome to part two of a three-part podcast series with Dale Resinella, Catholic Correctional Chaplain at Florida's Death Row. If you've not yet listened to part one, you might find it helpful to do so before listening to this episode. Maybe this would be a time, maybe Dale, to talk about maybe what an inmate goes through when his warrant is signed and just maybe the process. But I'm also going to have to touch a bit on what I go through. That'd be great. When the warrant is signed. That'd be great. You know, many of us in our families have dealt with loved ones who are facing terminal illness. Uh, I myself had a grandchild who was facing cancer. Prognosis was worse than not good. And no matter how much you have been trying to allow it to be real, when you're given a date or a time frame, something happens it's different. That's what happens with the five guys on death row and the women, too. You've been on death row. You've been going through appeals. You've got your lawyers. You've got the team that's representing you. You get to know the staff. I mean, the staff, and we'll get to this, but the staff, many of them have known these fellas for 20 or 30 years. They know their families from the visits in the death row visiting area. And everybody knows it could happen anytime. But all of a sudden, there's a date. Sometimes it's very short, five or six weeks. Sometimes it's longer. But there's a date. And that expiration date now is tattooed on that inmate's foot. Not actually, but that's how it feels. They've told me. That's how it feels. And they're moved immediately to the death house, to a cell the same size, but it's on the corridor that connects to the execution chamber. So the door at one end is where I come in to go to cell front in the death house. The door at the other end goes to the execution chamber. And I've had fellows tell me, and they didn't know anybody else had said it, that as their six weeks, which is pretty much the usual time period, goes by, they know it's not real. But psychologically, it's like every morning they wake up and the door to the execution chamber is closer than it was the night before when they went to sleep. And that's what's happening. They have their property locker, small amount of property and things. But other than that, everything is cut off. The wardens have been really good about about allowing phone calls from the death house to their mom, their dad, their wife, their kids, their grandkids. The last death watch I was on, the man is in his 70s. He's got great-grandchildren, and there's absolutely no forensic evidence that the state has of his being involved in the crime. 
his name was produced by a jailhouse snitch. And the guy who admitted doing the crime was given a life sentence instead of a death sentence in exchange for saying he was involved. Are you kidding me? This is what we're going to kill people on? Got great grandchildren. So all of that becomes urgent when that warrant is signed. And the inmate has to check, did he keep his family up to date on his visiting list? Because if they aren't up to date when the warrant is signed, nobody can be added. And there's no exceptions. It's a security risk. Why would somebody who hasn't come for 30 years suddenly want to show up for your execution? The state has to be worried that families and friends and loved ones might try and plot an escape attempt, which is going to involve hurting people on staff at the very least, if somebody's getting added right at the end. So I understand the security concerns. I'm actually somewhat obsessive about security. <laughs> I get a lot of feedback from the inmates that, you know, I could lighten up a little bit on defending security. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm a father of a large family. I've got 14 grandchildren. I'm from an ex- first-generation Italian family. I've got seven siblings. It's important to me that innocent people in society are protected. And that includes the staff and officers at these prisons who are trying to be good officers and doing their job with a sense of duty and standards. The last thing in the world I would want is to see any of them hurt. So we have to follow these rules, but the rules also require that if you didn't keep things up to date, you can't add anybody now. But they've been in the last couple of years allowing some phone calls to mitigate that, to take some of the pain out of it, not just for the death row inmate, but for the mom and the grandmother and the daughter and the rest of the family wife. So as soon as that warrant is signed, all this becomes urgent. If I'm going to be the spiritual advisor, usually I get a call from the prison. So-and-so's warrant has been signed. He's already been moved to the death house. He has six weeks or five, and he's requested you as his spiritual advisor. Will you do it? Are you willing to do it? Now, the first time this happened, I had never expected to be on Death Watch. I figured that was over my pay grade. I'm a volunteer layperson. But the inmate had asked. And I said, what am I going to do? Tell him no? I checked with the bishop in the church, and they said, I was qualified. In the church's eyes, I was qualified. I have a master's in pastoral theology from Ave Maria, and uh, I'd taken a whole lot of training at the state, not for this, but for other ways of doing pastoral care with people with terminal illness. And this is about as terminal as it's going to get. Nothing but terminal, yeah. And so uh, I said, well, if I'm qualified and the church is comfortable with me representing them on everything but the sacraments, I can't say no. My wife agreed. So I went down to Florida State Prison. I said, of course, I'll do it. What am I agreeing to do? And they, they told me the duties. 12 hours a week at Cellfront in the death house. And also I could minister to his family and be there with him or them during the visits because you're divided by glass. It's, you know, it's not con- it's not contact at this point. And uh, then on the day of execution, I need to be there before the family gets there, his family, and to greet them with the staff 
to be there with them and to help them deal with this situation. The mother, whoever's coming from the family, the children, usually adult children. It's rough. It's really rough, especially with daughters. Then after spending the entire family visit with um, him on the family side of the glass, then after the priest comes for what we used to call last rites, which are administered in the death house, then I take my station and I am with the inmate on the other side of the glass until they come and get me to have me take my place in the viewing room in the death house, in the execution area. So that's usually from about 1 o'clock till 4, 4.30. I always am sitting in the spiritual advisor's seat in the witness room, which is front row left. And I know that if this goes through, when this inmate is on the gurney strapped down with the needle in his arm, but they haven't started running the poison through it yet, When they wheel him in that room and they raise the curtain, he can see into the witness room and he's going to be looking for me. He only gets two witnesses. The rest of the room is all people who either work for the state or who are there because they want to see this go through. Also, a lot of politicians. I guess it gives you some stick if you can say, I've been to an execution. I don't know why anybody would want to be able to say that, but it seems to be something politicians want to be able to say in Florida. And he's going to be looking for me. I'm the only friendly face in the room if his lawyer's not going to be there. Most of these fellows, their lawyers, are fighting to try and get a stay. They're at their law office trying to stop this. So it's not unusual. I'm the only one in that witness room for the inmate. And it's not unusual that I'm sitting next to family members of the murder victim. Now, the state always tries to put somebody from the governor's victim advocacy office between me and the family members of the murder victim who are sitting in the same row. But that's not for me. I'm not uncomfortable with the family members of murder victims. My wife and I minister to family members of murder victims in non-death cases, non-death penalty cases. We're not legally allowed to do that because of our licenses if we're on the state side ministering. And so I tell him, look through the window where I'll be sitting and keep your eyes on me. And that's usually what the inmate wants to do at this point. He's heard from others how upsetting it can be to see all the people that want this to happen. But it's a lot fewer than it used to be. I've had quite a few of my more recent executions where nobody from the family of the murder victim showed up. In some cases, they didn't even want this to happen. Think about that. I have had guys who won the gurney in their final words, thanking the family members of the victim's family for not supporting this execution and for not being there to support it. Who's it for? It's not for me. It's not for the man on the gurney. It's not for his family. We're finally starting to hear about the trauma to the family of the condemned. Nobody would talk about that before because it felt like you were taking sides. But now people are talking about it. It's horrendous. And they're finally starting to talk about the trauma to the officers and staff. Just two months ago, a former warden of Florida State Prison, Florida's execution prison, wrote an op-ed in South Carolina in the State Gazette 
asking South Carolina to reverse their decision to try and restart executions in order to protect the officers and staff at those prisons from the trauma that that warden experienced and that his officers and staff experienced from being part of the machinery that kills a healthy person for the state, a person who no longer poses a threat to anybody. I have to deal with my demons from all this, and I do. It's called EMDR trauma therapy, and I've been through three and a half years of it to deal with the 19 executions I've already witnessed. And I have that therapist on speed dial if another warrant gets signed for one of my people. There's no nice way to kill people. And there's no way to prevent the trauma to good people of moral caliber who witness or are part of the machinery of making it happen. Our experience tells us that a lot of people have tried to deal with it by drinking, by drugs, by other self-destructive behaviors that kept the pain out of sight till they could get through and retire. But guess what? It doesn't work. And I've been there in the death house when officers who've known the inmate for 20 or 30 or more years come down to the death house at Cellfront to say goodbye. I had one sergeant, and he had a reputation in that prison. His nickname that was given to him by the officers and staff was Sergeant Redneck, and he loved it. He was proud of it, and he would say, just call me Sergeant Redneck. But he always treated me well, and he was good to me, and I considered him to be a very upright person of Christian moral character. He was doing his job. And he wasn't Catholic, but he knew this inmate. And he came down there. He got permission to come in at cell front. And he barked from down the corner. Chat, get in the front. That's the way he talked to me. You know, it's like I'm family. <laughs> and then step aside. I'm, I'm going to stand at the gate of the cell, at the front of the cell. And he stepped up there and he put his arms through those bars. And he took the hands of the inmate and he sighed inside. And he said with tears in his eyes, I never knew you when you were out there on the street, meaning free, and you committed the crimes that you committed. I didn't know you then, but I've known you since the day you came to death row. And it's been 17 years. And I know who you are in here when you're not on drugs and you're not drinking. And he said, I know you're a better person than I am. He said, they wanted me to work second shift tonight and be on the death squad. And I told them I couldn't do it and I wouldn't even be inside that prison when it happens. I couldn't do it. And he looked at that fellow. And now they're both crying. And I said, nothing. But he said, goodbye, good man. I pray that Jesus will be merciful to me and I will see you again when it's my day to go home to him because I know you're going to go right from that gurney to the lap of Jesus Christ. He left and I finished the death watch and the execution, witnessed the execution. And that was on a Thursday. On Friday morning, that sergeant called in and resigned, lost all his benefits lost all his accumulated time, 20-some years, and walked away from it because he knew he couldn't bear to watch any more people 
be killed, people who were no longer a threat to society, and in many cases, like with this particular fella, were at their best place spiritually and morally of their whole lives. Couldn't do it. Just walked away from it all. We do tremendous harm to our wonderful officers and staff by requiring them to kill healthy people for us. Healthy people who are no longer a threat to society. So when I get that phone call now, all of this I already know. This is what's coming. But the first thing that has to happen is that the family of the condemned has to be notified. Nobody wants to make those calls. Who wants to call the mom and the father and the daughter and the son and the kids, maybe even the adult grandchildren, and tell them that their loved one, their father, their grandfather, their uncle, is going to be killed by the state of Florida in five weeks. And here's what you have to do if you want to come say goodbye. Nobody wants to make those calls. And for several years, the prison would hand me the list and tell me, well, you're a spiritual advisor, chap. You call them. It's hard to describe those calls. But everybody at the prisons calls me Brother Dale. Even the bishops, when they come, call me Brother Dale. They know I'm not a Catholic religious brother. I've got five kids and 14 grandchildren. (laughs) And I'm still married. But that's what they call me at the prisons. And when I call that list, as each family member answers the phone and I identify myself, they know I'm not allowed to call them. We're prohibited from contact with the family of the inmate until the warrant's signed. So the fact that I'm calling them tells them what's happened. And I listen. As soon as I say who I am, especially if it's the mother or grandmother or daughter, they gasp. And you can see in your mind's eye the hand going to clutch the chest. On some occasions, I've heard the phone hit the floor as they dropped it. I've got to make sure they're okay. And I, I tell them again who I am. And then I'm calling them because their loved one has been scheduled to be executed by the state of Florida on such and such a day. And what they have to do if they want to come to say goodbye, or if they want to come to visit during those five or six weeks, it's impossible to describe what the death penalty does to the people who are touched by it. We know that it traumatizes the family of the murder victim. In one case where I was sitting right next to the family, the daughter, granddaughter of the condemned was sitting right next to me. She had been told for 17 years by the state, the prosecutor's office, stick with us. Don't walk along the death penalty. Stick with us. And when you watch this man be killed, you will be healed. Your pain will be over. This is the death penalty as healing myth. The only healer I know is Jesus and people that work for Jesus. When they pronounced him dead and closed the curtain, She stood up and started banging her fists on the glass. I was on one side of her. The victim advocate was on the other side. We both looked at each other, trying to assess whether we needed to gently restrain this woman so she didn't break the glass and hurt herself. But she got herself under control, and she just left in tears, shaking her head. A few months later, I was at a conference where Bud Welsh and I were speaking. Bud Welsh's daughter was killed in the Oklahoma City bombing. And he had asked that the judge and the jury in Oklahoma not give McVeigh the death penalty, but they did. And he said it was horrendous for him. So when him and I were alone, I said, what happened? What was happening in that poor dear lady who was in her 30s when she was banging on the glass? 
He said, I can tell you exactly what happened. For 17 years, which is how long the state had fought to get to this execution, for 17 years, she'd been told she would feel different. She would be healed. Her agony would be over. And the moment they pronounced him dead, she knew nothing for her had changed. She'd been had by the state, used by them to get an execution for whatever that does for them. She had been victimized a second time. It traumatizes the family of the murder victim. It's horrendously traumatic for the family of the condemned. Traumatizes the staff and the officer. The only people who aren't touched by it are the people who don't get close to it. The politicians. Who's this killing for? 